This is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Later today, I'll be joined by my boss, Kyle Pope, CJR's editor and publisher, to discuss Bob Woodward in the age of Trump. The legendary Watergate journalist has a book out next week titled Fear, Trump in the White House. On Tuesday, excerpts from that book started making the rounds on social media and in published reports, and it is something. We'll discuss some of the juiciest quotes that are already out there and talk about what we anticipate once the full thing hits the shelves. But first, on Monday, Reuters reporters Wa Lon and Chao So U were found guilty of violating Myanmar's Official Secrets Act and sentenced to seven years in prison. Reuters president Stephen J. Adler immediately issued a statement saying, quote, Today is a sad day for Myanmar, Reuters journalists Wa Lon and Chao So U, and the press everywhere. The decision drew outrage from press freedom advocates around the globe, including from the Committee to Protect Journalists, whose executive director, Joel Simon, joins me now. Joel, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me on. So it's been clear from the time that these journalists were arrested that this was an unjustified attack on the press. But can you describe, for those of us who maybe haven't been following as closely, what the Burmese government claimed as the reason for their arrest? Uh, The authorities in Myanmar were uh, concerned about the reporting uh, on the Rohingya crisis in Rakhine State and were monitoring their activities and knew that they had been uh, reporting. And so they basically set up a sting operation. This is what was came out at the trial, uh, where uh, they were invited to a restaurant, they were given uh, documents, and as soon as they walked out the door uh, of the restaurant, they were arrested. Those documents uh, were not even precisely sure what they were, but somehow the um, uh, Myanmar authorities considered them to be documents that uh, were a threat to national security. They were uh, arrested on that basis and have been charged on that basis. And so uh, this is clearly from the get-go a a sort of rogue state operation masquerading as a legal process. Right. And from the get-go back in December, there has been pressure from press freedom groups, from other governments, from UN Ambassador Nikki Haley gave a statement on Monday. Have those attempts, that pressure, just fallen completely on deaf ears? I don't think so. I mean, you have to remember what what government you're dealing with. You're dealing with a a government that for 40 years was... uh run by a military junta that was, you know, basically immune to international pressure. It obviously uh, has made a transition to a more uh, democratic society, but the uh, military still remains very much in control. I think really the framework is not whether there has been a cost uh, that uh, Myanmar has had to pay uh, for this uh, terrible uh, violation of press freedom and of international law, but whether the government is willing to pay it. And so far, the answer seems to be yes. There are very significant consequences, uh, but this is a government that, despite the transition, uh, it remains deeply resistant to international pressure um, and is, is uh, willing to, at, at least up to this point, uh, suffer the consequences. Right. And that government, uh, at least the civilian side of it, is led by Aung San Suu Kyi, who, of course, is a Nobel Peace Prize winner and former political prisoner herself. Has she given any indication that this, this issue matters to her vision of what a democratic Myanmar looks like? Uh, in a word, no. 
I mean, we just we don't have to talk about that at length. There's been no indication that she sees this issue as as essential to her democratic legitimacy or the country's democratic legitimacy. Um, uh, obviously, that's deeply disappointing, um, not just to human rights groups and press freedom groups like ours, but to uh, governments and political leaders and uh, uh, from around the world who advocated for her when she was imprisoned under essentially the same charges. Uh, so it's uh, deeply disappointing, deeply ironic, but there's no indication uh, that she's uh, willing to give on this. Right. And without any sort of intervention from her, what's next for Wallon and Chao So-U? Steve Adler mentioned in his statement that the company would investigate the possibility of bringing their case before an international tribunal. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously uh, the Reuters team has brought on uh, Amal Clooney, who is uh, handled um, uh, international legal representation of other uh, journalists who've been unjustly imprisoned around the world. Um, I wrote about this for uh, Columbia Journalism Review. So they, the, the expectation is that they're going to tap into her expertise and look for opportunities to find the appropriate international legal venue. You know, that, that's certainly what uh, Reuters has indicated is their next step. And this individual case is just part of a larger trend. You mentioned in that piece for CJR that last year was a record in the number of journalists jailed around the world. What forces in the big picture do you attribute this to? That's complicated. I think there are a variety of factors. Um, one is you know, the nature of who's doing journalism. It's obviously easier for people uh, who um, are bloggers or working independently or using social media or using other kinds of um, uh, social media to disseminate news and information, essentially functioning as journalists. They're more vulnerable. Uh, then uh, governments are more sensitive to independent information. This certainly was a trend we saw following um, uh, the Arab Spring. They recognize that independent information, when you're do, when you're thinking you know, about an autocratic uh, regime, is, is is a threat. And then I think that the other factor is the the framework for repression. You have um, uh, the war on terror going back to 2001. We saw a spike in the number of journalists uh, jailed in the aftermath of the uh, Bush administration's war on terror. Anti-terror legislation provides a uh, very uh, convenient framework for justifying and legitimizing repression. Uh, And now we're seeing a new framework emerging, that of false news or fake news. Um, The number of journalists imprisoned around the world uh, on such charges has more than doubled in the last uh, year and a half. Right. And this is obviously the world that you and your colleagues at CPJ live in. So I just want to end by asking, Given that trend that we've seen around the world, do you see any reasons for optimism about the state of press freedoms uh, in the areas that you cover or here in the U.S.? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I could get up in the morning if I didn't see uh, uh, some room for optimism. I, I want to sort of link this to the broader issue and then go back to what's happening in, in Myanmar. Uh, first of all, we live in the information age. There's an explosion of information. People, could, you know, despite... The, the growing repression, part of it is in response to the fact that people have access to more independent information than at any time uh, in human history. That, that, that's unquestionable. That is a threat to governments and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and autocratic forces and violent forces, and that's one of the reasons uh, we're seeing uh, the backlash. But, you know, going back to um, Myanmar and what's happening to these, uh, these two journalists, I think you have to, 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 to look at it in a, in, a, in a slightly different way, which is, you know how the, the the media, because it's more fractured and polarized, um, and has 
perhaps uh, f fewer resources as, as an institution, uh, perhaps has less power than it once did. But it's still cumulatively, when, when zeroes in on a case like this one and this kind of injustice, uh, can bring a lot of pressure to bear and has clearly mobilized the international community around uh, this press freedom violation. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I don't know what the time frame is, uh, but I think uh, the government of uh, Myanmar is paying a very, very serious price for this clear uh, violation of press freedom and, and, and human rights. It's a, it's a threat to uh, the legitimacy of the democratic transition in that country. It, they're going to resist that pressure. I hope, I hope at some point they recognize that it's in their interest, their national interest, their security interests, to find a, a face-saving way forward and that these journalists uh, are, are released forthwith. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the optimism. Reading through the CPJ blog and some of the reporting you guys do, it can paint a pessimistic pitch, picture, but uh, it's nice to hear that you're optimistic about uh, the outcomes moving forward, and I really appreciate the time on a busy day for squeezing in some time to talk with us. Great speaking with you anytime. Thanks. Turning news closer to our shores, I'm joined by CJR editor and publisher Kyle Pope. Kyle, great to have you here. Thanks. So next Tuesday, Bob Woodward, the legendary Watergate journalist, will be out with a book titled Fear, Trump in the White House. The first excerpts from this book have started making their way across our social media feeds and into news reports specifically in the Washington Post. And some of the excerpts from it are pretty shocking. It's crazy. You, you should read that John Kelly quote. All right. I got it right here. This is John Kelly as quoted in Bob Woodward's book. He said of Trump, quote, he's an idiot. It's pointless to try and convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. I don't even know why any of us are here. This is the worst job I've ever had, <laughs> end quote. Now, of course, we could, some of that, a lot of us could say on our worst days, right? Sure. Um, I mean, I would never not say that ever. about, you know, my not boss here at CJR, but, you know. No, it is, it is extraordinary. I guess we also should caveat this with the fact that neither of us has read this book. Right. The, the first kind of reports from CNN and the Washington Post were the two that I saw that had obtained copies of this. Right. But, you know, it, it does sort of raise this question about how do you convey the state that we're in? Um, you know, we, we were talking gosh, it seems like a million years ago, but it was last week when there was all this discussion around the flags flying half-staff or not flying half-staff at the White House around John McCain's death and the pettiness of the fact that Trump had apparently ordered them not to be blown half-mast. And, and there was a ton of coverage around that. Of what seemed like a this little detail. Right? Uh, it seemed like a little detail, and it seemed like, you know, it seemed like a sort of uh, bureaucratic bungle or whatever. But it was, like, glommed onto by reporters because, I mean, my sense of it is that a lot of the beat reporters who cover this White House every day sort of know what it looks like from the inside. and it's, it, but But find it very hard to convey the depth of the dysfunction. And so when something that's kind of small, like that flag thing, pops up, people, like, swarm it because they're like, here is, here is something that people can easily understand. And here is a little tiny thing that is sort of emblematic of this big thing that we've been really trying to get our heads around and, more importantly, trying to convey to our audiences. Um, and I think that they've, they've, they've really struggled. I mean, there's, there's been they, – they've struggled to find the language – to, uh, frankly, to sort of reflect the, the lived experience that you and I and everybody else has, which is we wake up every day and we're like, this is crazy. This is sort of insane. 
Um, I mean, there was a Trump tweet in the last day or so about railing against Jeff Sessions for going against these two congressmen for laws that they broke because it was going to mess up the midterms. And people were saying, how can a sitting president do that to his attorney general? But this is the world that we're living in. And so the challenge for reporters is how do you write about this and convey this, especially if you're on this sort of daily treadmill beat, which gets us to Woodward's book because I think there is an argument to be made that the scale of what's going on is so immense and also just so difficult to convey that books are a better venue than daily journalism, maybe. As people that follow this every day, it kind of feels like we appreciate on some level the accumulation of reports from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And at the same time, something like this comes out. And I expect that I'm going to read this and hear a bunch of stuff that I already know, or I had almost forgotten that it occurred six or eight months ago or whatever. But the impact, the in totality, the book is going to tell me something about life in Washington under Trump um, that I, I kind of knew but didn't appreciate. Is that kind of what you're getting at, that these reporters have uh, a daily grind, a set of deadlines to hit, and 1,200 words to fill, and therefore they can't somehow express bigger picture ideas that they know to be true but can't figure out how to communicate? I think that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, uh, unlike most of what you do on this podcast, this is a very unformed <laughs> conversation. Oh, no. Yeah, we never have those kind of... Uh, <laughs> I think it's almost kind of a pointillist um approach to journalism, which is there's a lot of little data dots. And when you look at them up close, they look like little data dots. And you really have to step back and you sort of see the image that's emerging once you step back. But it means consuming a ton of news to, to get this picture. And, you know, I've I've been saying for a while, and I'm frankly thinking this through now in terms of what I can, what more I can say or we could say, but there does seem to be a whole um, in in the coverage and a, a, a an inability for people to convey what we're really living through, um, and this is where you know previously you know we've written things sort of calling for a new imagination or a bigger imagination in terms of covering Trump, um, and so how do you how do you convey the sort of state that we're in in daily journalism, and you know one of the things that you find when when you have a book like Woodward's and by the way. You know, we, we we talk about this, and it feels like we have to sort of stop and say, Woodward is, by the way, one of the great journalists right. of our generation. This is so, not Michael Wolf. Right. So if anybody is going to nail this, it's going to be him. So let's give him all due props for this. Again, we haven't read the book. But so. that's not going to stop us from speculating. Of course not. You know. um, <laughs> um, so, of course, he would capture it, right? But, I mean, there needs to be a way for the beat reporters everywhere else to be able to capture this in a way that I think a lot of us are sort of as good as they are and as good a job as they've done. I still think that if you go back in 10 years and look at these last two years of coverage and ask yourself, however this administration ends, did what I just read um, really convey what it was like to live in America in 2016 and 2017 and 2018. And there's part of me, part of this sort of pit of my stomach that feels like it doesn't. So I've had do a question. Do you agree with that? I do. And I have a question about it, though, because you're positing that there is a way for newspaper journalists to develop new techniques, new ways of telling the story that will convey what it feels like to live in America in, in 2018. I just wonder if 
much in the way that cable news, I, I guess where I'm coming from this is, I think there are some really smart people on cable news. I think there are some good journalists on cable news. And I am endlessly frustrated by what I watch there. Mm. And I just don't know if that's a feature of the format, that th this is not You're a frustrated, place why? Because you don't have nuance. You don't have uh, often context. You don't have a historical memory that lasts a month. Mm. It's here's this the controversy of the day. Let's debate how much of a turning point in the Trump presidency. Is this the day that the Trump presidency reached a turning point? This is the thing that, right, this... this yeah. uh, That's my favorite Yeah, one. right. Uh, this motif that pops up again and again. But now let's take that to journalism, to newspaper journalism, where there is great reporting on breaking Digital stories. Digital journalism. Yeah. And it's, it's more ephemeral, right? It's especially on our computers. It's there and it scrolls through our Twitter feed and we open a tab and maybe we read the whole story. Do you think that the ephemeral nature of daily journalism in newspapers as, as practiced online or in print just isn't suited to giving us the sort of context that a book like this can? Well, I mean, certainly not. In, no, not in form. It can't do what a book like this does. Um, magazines get closer. Right. Um, but but that's not a, that's a um, explanation and an excuse, really. Um, so the question to me is, how do you free up these amazing beat reporters we have um, to do a better job of conveying this? And I mean, my my initial view is that we just need to unleash them more. And I, mean, I think I, that's happened a little bit. I've seen a happened. lot more news analysis front pages from Peter Baker and Ashley Parker yeah. and Dan Balls. And those are, are the best stories. Right. Those are the best stories. So I think you know maybe putting down even more some of these guardrails. I think is a, I mean, you know, a, a lot of times I find myself reading a story um, in one of these places and thinking, God, I wish I could just call this reporter and say, well, what was, what's, the real, what's really going on here? Like, what was the real thing? And they would, I, I just have this bet that they would say, well, yeah, that basically the story was right, but here's what I think the real thing is. Now, of course, there. The phrase you used there was, I think. Is this, right, is yeah. this a call for just. Less when you talk about guardrails, is it removing some of the idea that the reporter is just the fly on the wall and saying, "No, I, I'm an intelligent person who has ascended to the pinnacle of my profession and have spent X number of years covering Trump or covering D.C. and based on all of that, here is my informed analysis, my thoughts." Yeah, I think it is, and and you you brought it up. I mean, I think the the best, most interesting, and most informative pieces I often read are the ones that have this kind of news analysis. Uh, label on them. Um, and they're in the news pages, and we're not talking about stuff that's in the op-ed pages. So I, I don't know. I, I think that's one of the answers. We've talked before about oral histories, mm -hmm. about um, first-person pieces by, you know, by people who are players in these events and letting them sort of talk about them as they live them. Um, I, you know, I, I just think, you know, the more we can do to, to to get out of the 1,500-word staff-written story that has, you know, quotes from both sides. Of, and and it, it just feels it feels confined and it feels constrained. I mean, I, you know, and I think about this, you know, at CJR. Like, how do we tell the story of what we're, what journalism is going through? And we can have sort of a, you know, we can have somebody just write that every day and, and, and sort of say he, 
here here's this thing here's a quote here's some analysis and move on but i mean my my view is that it's a richer publication if we have uh you know today for instance we had a piece by a mexican journalist who was who was detained by ice and wrote about what it was like in this detention center with his young child um he wrote it for us in spanish and we translate it but i mean that is like an amazing um, textured piece of the whole puzzle, not just about what it's like to be a journalist in Mexico, which is, which has reporters under threat. I mean, this is something that Joel Simon just talked about, um, but also what what that what ICE is like and what it's what that part of it's like. And so that to me was a much better story coming from somebody who lived it than than a reported piece would have been. And you can just sort of multiply that out a hundred times. And and they're just the more voices, the more different approaches, the more different sort of story forms, I think the better the storytelling in general is going to be. And I think there's just still a little bit too much um, feeling of being, um, of being wearing a sort of tight jacket. Yeah. And it sounds like this 450 page book that Woodward is putting out next week will provide us some of those opportunities. Yeah. Well, as an editor at various places, I've always been frustrated by you know, so you have you have somebody writes a sort of blockbuster, whether it's a book or a massive piece or a big magazine story that really brings the whole thing together. And you go to the beat reporter and, and, and you say, like, oh, Jesus, you know, that would have been great to have had that. And they say, well, we had that. We knew we, that. We, yeah. we knew that. If you Everybody look at, knew if that. You, or, or they'll say, if you look at graph six of mm-hmm. this story that ran four months ago, that was mentioned there. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, technically that's true. But um, – that we we may have we may have had the fact, but we sort of missed the story. Right. Um, so I think that's sort of what we're talking about here. Oh, it's storytelling, right? Is what you're saying is right. finding the whether it's the through lines or taking that little factual piece of information and recognizing it for what it really is, as opposed to just another block in the daily building that you're creating of a of a fifteen hundred word story. Right. I mean, we we have to be careful here because. Um, I mean, it is unf- it's, it's somewhat unfair to compare a 450-page book. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, so that's all your fault. Because we'll <laughs> I presented this uh, yeah. as, a, as a topic. Yeah. Um, what are you looking forward to the most in the book? Is there somebody you want to hear from? Trump, we should say, is not directly quoted in this, and we'll post the audio from the Washington Post. Yeah, where... which is hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's it's all so I, – I, I am really intrigued by – and this, the Kelly quote that you read gets to this question of like, who works there? Like, what sane person would would have one of these jobs? And there's always been this discussion about, oh well, thank goodness there's sort of smart Mattis people. Mattis and Tillerson yeah, and Cohn gonna, and the Committee gonna, to Protect America, as Mike <laughs> Allen labeled it. They're going to sort of keep the brakes on and keep everything from going off the rails or whatever. So I'm really interested in hearing more about what those people's experiences is like. I mean, I, I think um, one detail that was reported was Gary Cohn removing from Trump's desk a, an agreement or a, a document that would have pulled us out of a trade agreement with South Korea. And he just kind of took it from the desk before Trump could sign it and then buried it in a drawer. Right. Which is something should. which is something that you do. I have a two and a half year old. And if there's something dangerous in front of her, will will like that she likes will go sort of quietly and take it off of her field of vision so she doesn't know and she doesn't scream when you know it's taken this the, the what he just described is something you do with children 
Um, with adults, what you do say, what you say is you have this thing on your desk. Maybe it's not a good idea. Let's have a discussion about it. So, yeah, I'm interested in hearing a lot more from those people and about what it's like to work there and how do they how do they sort of what is the mental calculus that they because also in the excerpt it talks about something we've actually heard before, which is uh, Gary Cohn, who is Jewish, was deeply offended by Trump's response to Charlottesville and considered resigning at the time. And then Trump, according to this excerpt, tells him it would be treasonous. Is that right? To resign, yeah. If, if he resigned. So, like, that that's just an example of, like, so... And yet, after that, Cohn stayed for a while. Right. Um, how do you make that calculation? And how do you sort of... What do you tell yourself? Um, I think it's totally fascinating. Yeah, and it sounds like we're going to hear those quotes, whether they are attributed or whether it was... Another example of Woodward showing up uh, as it was reported uh, when the book was announced that he would go and show up at people's houses late at night and just ask them to talk. Um, I don't know how many quotes are on background or how many are directly referenced, but it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating, and we're going to end up in another slightly depressing cycle of Trump supporters saying all this is made up, saying it's all fake news, that journalism isn't to be trusted. Um, And I think that's why... Woodward released this tape of his conversation with Trump to sort of show, to sort of like get out there, like we really wanted your input and you stonewalled us and frankly lied about whether you had heard from us or not. And as Trump said on that tape to Woodward, you've always been fair. Right. You've always been fair. Exactly. So we'll find out if he agrees with that once the full book is out next week. But I'm fascinated to read it and hopefully we'll get a copy of it before the weekend. We can get a little sneak peek preview. Yes. It's your job. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks especially to CPJ's Joel Simon for fitting us into his schedule today. And as always, to my boss, Kyle Pope. Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.